Half-Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Evil Dead from 2013. Adapted by Fede Alvarez and Rodo Seguyas from the screenplay by Sam Raimi, with additional uncredited material by Diablo Cody, directed by Fede Alvarez. Although that 2013 date is a teensy bit misleading, because Sam Raimi, Rob Tappert, and Bruce Campbell had been working to get another Evil Dead movie off the ground for over ten years by the time this... remake? Reimagining? Spin-off? Sequel? Let's just say this movie for now and we'll dig into it later was released. Because while none of the movies in the classic Evil Dead trilogy were big theatrical successes, they all made massive bank in the home video market. Their popularity grew and grew with every passing year as their reputation and influence spread, to the point where Raimi had to explain to some poor unfortunate junior executive at Universal just what the franchise was, because all they knew was that one of their cheapy horror comedies called Army of Darkness was making money hand over fist, and they were hoping they could sell him on making a direct-to-video Army of Darkness 2? By the early 2000s, it was clear there was a demand for another installment, but no one was exactly sure how to get it made when the films in the series tended to have big upfront costs and slow, methodical payouts. This is not the profit model studio executives like to see, because often you can go bankrupt and have your assets sold off at auction before you see those slow payouts, and someone else winds up reaping the rewards for your success. That's why Desilu Studios is a footnote to entertainment history, while Paramount is still raking in the dough on the original Star Trek series but I digress. Evil Dead 4 seemed to be out of the question because even after 20 years in the acting business, nobody who called the shots thought Bruce Campbell could lead a motion picture. Being handsome and funny in Hollywood is its own weird curse. It's like they can let you be one or the other, but if you're both, they don't know what to do with you. A remake was possible. Around the time this film had its genesis, we were just beginning to see the big aughts-era remake craze take flight with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But Campbell was against it, as he was very protective of his Ash character and didn't want to see it recast. And unlike most of the other franchises we've talked about, except maybe Phantasm, the rights to this series remained in the hands of its original creators and they weren't about to sell each other out. Man, can't you friends like these guys? Forty years have not diminished one iota of Bruce and Sam's loyalty to each other. Eventually, they settled on the notion of a spiritual successor that would feature the same basic concept. Five people go up to a cabin in the woods, there's an evil book that unleashes possessing demons, chaos ensues, but that wouldn't have the same characters, allowing it to exist independently of the classic trilogy and even potentially cross over with it. They're still talking about doing that, in fact, and it's become much more likely now that Evil Dead Rise is such a hit. But we'll save that for another episode. While they hashed out the details, Bruce reprised Ash again in video game form for Evil Dead, Hail to the King, Evil Dead, A Fistful of Boomstick, and Evil Dead Regeneration, which all continue Ash's story in some manner from the movies. There was also an unauthorized stage musical, Evil Dead the Musical, which began as an independent parody but which gradually gained the approval of Bruce and Sam. And, frankly, I would love to see it made into its own movie, if for no other reason than I have the soundtrack practically memorized. 
Finally, around 2011, things began to click into place and they settled on Fede Alvarez to direct. Alvarez was a Uruguayan filmmaker with no previous feature credits, but he had done a short called Attack de Panico that was very well received, and I have to imagine that Raimi saw something of a kindred spirit in the young, hungry director. Alvarez decided to make as much of the film using practical effects as possible, as a tribute to Raimi's raw and visceral independent original, and set about working on a film that recaptured the themes and motifs of The Evil Dead without repeating its plot. He worked with his close collaborator, Rodo Sayaguyas, who he'd go on to make Don't Breathe with, and who would go on to direct Don't Breathe 2, to write the screenplay, which was then doctored by Diablo Cody of Jennifer's Body fame to fit the vernacular of American characters a little better, as English was neither Alvarez nor Sayaguyas' first language. And then they set to casting. Taking the characters in order of their position in the acronym, we have Shiloh Fernandez as David, who fills the ash role for much of the picture. Fernandez has been acting regularly since the mid-2000s, most notably for horror fans in the intense and uncomfortable 2008 film Dead Girl, and in 2021 he wrote and produced his own movie, The Birthday Cake. I think it's safe to say that this is still his signature role, but I don't want to discount his hard work in dozens of other productions for film and television. Lou Taylor Pucci plays Eric, the literal worst human being imaginable and the secret villain of this movie, but that shouldn't be taken as a slight on the actor. He knows his role in this film is to be the one who's rude, judgmental, and responsible for literally everything bad that happens at all times. Pucci is another hard-working character actor and day player who has a few signature roles in very famous, or infamous, productions. He was in Southland Tales, the doomed successor project to Richard Kelly's cult hit Donnie Darko, and he was Evan in Benson and Moorhead's arthouse horror hit Spring. As Mia, we have actor Jane Levy, just to clarify she's not related to actor Eugene Levy or producer Sean Levy, in case you were wondering if this was another Nepo Baby situation. Levy pretty much got her start with this movie. She'd done a couple of roles previously as April in Fun Size and as Carolyn in Nobody Walks, but there's nothing like being the sole survivor of a supernatural massacre to bolster your career. Um, spoilers. And she's gone on to a nice little career over the past ten years that includes appearances in Twin Peaks and Castle Rock, a lead role in the television version of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, and of course a Fede Alvarez reunion for the movie Don't Breathe. Jessica Lucas plays Olivia, Mia's friend and nurse. For those of you watching this movie and saying the whole time, Oh my god, she looks so familiar, where do I know her from? You, like me, have probably seen Cloverfield more times than you can count and know her as Lily in that movie. She's the one who's helicoptered out of the story right before the final sequence. She was also Tabitha Galavan on 67 episodes of Gotham. She was Skye in the TV series Cult. She was Riley in the rebooted Melrose Place. And in general, she's been keeping extremely busy for herself with long-running spots on a number of TV shows. And finishing out our acronym is Elizabeth Blackmore's Natalie an Australian actor who's done recurring roles on Supernatural, The Vampire Diaries, and Legend of the Seeker. She's sadly underused here with a lot of her scenes and dialogue cut out at the script stage before shooting even started, but man does she make the most out of her, let's just say, memorable moments. Incidentally, I can't help wondering what would have happened if David was dating someone named Opal. Would they have summoned a Demu? Anyway. Before we begin, a couple of trigger warnings. As is typical for the Evil Dead movies, there is a level of intensity to the gore that's a little bit higher than normal, so keep in mind your tolerance for dismemberment and bodily fluids, which does include vomit this time out. 
There's also some talk of addiction and drug abuse due to the premise of the film, and there's also discussion of a scene featuring sexual assault and several more that feature self-harm, albeit in a fantastic context of demonic possession. If you're not in a good place to handle these conversations, you may want to find a different episode to listen to. The movie starts with a cold open, as a bloody teenage girl, played by Phoenix Connolly, is wandering through skeletal woods, looking lost and terrified when she spots another figure through the fog. She tries to flee, only to be caught by another man dressed in rough and simple clothing, who tackles her to the ground and puts a bag over her head while the first man knocks her unconscious with the butt of a shotgun. When she regains consciousness, she's tied to a post in a basement, and a group of rustic country people are flipping through a familiar-looking book and speaking in strange tongues. They're actually speaking Welsh, for reasons that are never explained. The book certainly isn't Welsh, the story isn't set in Wales, so I guess Harold called in a Welsh occultist to deal with his daughter? Whatever her credentials, she's certainly hanging a lot of extraneous cat corpses from the ceiling for whatever it is she's planning. She's played by Sean Davis, by the way, and she'll also be making a return appearance later in the series, if not in this movie. The girl's father, Harold, played by Jim McLarty, pulls the bag off her head, and she immediately begins pleading to be let free and brought home, and it's heartbreaking and terrifying for a few moments as you wonder whether she's going to be the victim of some ritual sacrifice orchestrated by her own dad before she asks where her mother is, and Harold says, you killed her. The girl is desperate, frightened, but Harold pours gasoline all over her head and strikes a match, and suddenly her eyes go demonic and she begins screaming threats at him instead as she burns. He shoots her in the face, and we go into the stark title card. Evil. Dead. When we come back out moments later, Alvarez gives us an initial shot of the woods that tells us he is absolutely committed to giving us direction every bit as dynamic as his famous predecessor. We begin with an inverted shot of the forest, with the sky on the bottom and the trees on top, that gradually rotates into a high overhead view of a jeep driving down a narrow two-lane road and through a shallow river, before finally coming to a stop at a very familiar-looking cabin. I've mentioned in the past that inverted camera positioning is generally used to represent some sort of upending of the natural order of events, like in Black Panther when Killmonger becomes king, and long, wide shots are used to create a sense of isolation and insignificance. So this is Alvarez very economically letting us as the audience know that the world is already topsy-turvy from minute one, and the main characters are pretty much powerless in the face of it. It's a nice, unsettling way to start a narrative. The jeep pulls up, letting out David and his girlfriend Natalie, who greet the already-arrived Olivia and Eric. There's a lot of information packed into a few brief exchanges, most of it subtextual. The way Olivia calls David a hot-shit city boy and demands a hug from him like you mean it, as well as describing Natalie as the heartbreaker from your auto shop, suggests that David and Olivia were once romantically involved, but that he decided to get out of a small-town life and the others resent him a little for it. Obviously, the cabin is way the hell out in the middle of nowhere, but apparently it's more of a drive for David than for the others. Likewise, when Natalie calls Olivia a doctor instead of a nurse, it doesn't seem to be done in a catty way. She's genuinely embarrassed by the mistake, suggesting that maybe David doesn't talk much about the folks he left behind. Lucas does an excellent job of putting on a facade of bright, brittle cheerfulness to mask what are clearly some hurt feelings. 
Eric, on the other hand, who seems to be Olivia's current boyfriend, has no problems letting David know early and often that he's angry over the way the other man left them all behind, wasting no opportunities to needle and jab at David over what he sees as failures of loyalty. Hoochie seems to be channeling his inner Eric Stoltz in these scenes, both in his sharp temperament and in his 70s hair and beard, which he grew deliberately as a tribute to the older 1981 style of the original Evil Dead. But David, who seems determined to mend fences, only hugs him in response. Out back of the cabin, David's sister Mia is sketching while sitting on top of a rusted-out Oldsmobile Delta. This isn't the legendary 1973 Delta 88 that Sam Raimi includes in all his movies, it's a 1974 Delta 88 instead. That's probably because Raimi was off shooting Oz the Great and Powerful at the time, and yes, he even managed to work the car in there, albeit in greatly altered form as components of the wizard's laboratory. Mia needles David as well, but he takes it all in stride and gives back nothing but unconditional affection in return. He even brings back the family dog Grandpa for a return visit, and yeah, let's not get too attached to that dog, and gives Mia a necklace made out of buckthorn with a magnifying glass pendant to help strengthen her will for her upcoming ordeal. Wait. What ordeal, you might ask? As the group gathers around an old and hopefully disused well, it's not even covered, you could just have fallen leaves in it, she dumps out her entire supply of heroin into the water and prepares for three days of cold turkey withdrawal at the family cabin. For those of you who might not have gotten all these say-no-to-drugs talks back in school, heroin is one of those drugs that creates a physical dependency as well as an emotional one. So quitting without stepping down your dose or taking a substitute like methadone that satisfies the craving without providing the high results in a period of withdrawal symptoms. These can take the form of vomiting, diarrhea, cramps, muscle and joint pain, chills, restlessness. Basically, it's like getting a bad case of the flu, but the only cure is heroin. Olivia's there to provide medical attention and make sure Mia doesn't die of dehydration, always a possibility when someone's rapidly losing fluids through vomiting and diarrhea. David's there because he's the only one who has the keys to the cabin, another reason Eric's mad at him, they all got there several hours before he did and had to sit outside waiting for him, and the others are all there to provide moral support. Except Natalie, who's feeling a bit like a fifth wheel, but she presumably came along to support David, because Lord knows nobody else is. They go into the cabin, and wouldn't you know it, somebody's been in there already. Mia immediately smells something the others don't notice, a reek of decay lingering beneath the floorboards. But the group is very quick to gaslight all her perceptions as signs of opioid withdrawal, and they don't trust anything she tells them. Which, in fairness, is a common problem with people who are trying to kick severe addictions. Once the cravings get strong enough, it can be very difficult to muster up the resolve to continue fighting them, and people have been known to lie rationalize, equivocate, and even verbally abuse the very loved ones they've asked for help. It's a very tough situation to be in for everyone on both sides, and I do think one of the most inventive and clever aspects of this film is the way it uses that as a premise, even though as we get into the second and third act, obviously that takes a backseat to the oh my god, there are literal demons possessing people and making them do horrible things, and we are all going to die here. Everyone gets settled in, with Mia going back to her old bedroom and looking over the family photos on the wall. David comes in looking for the fuse box, and they wind up talking about her mother's last days in the hospital. She suffered from dementia, and Mia was the only one there to take care of her, something she none too subtly resents. David's excuses are frankly bullshit, too. He says he just started a new job and, quote, had a hard time finding the right moment to come back, unquote. 
That's shitty guy speak for I didn't want to deal with mom ever again. And while I do understand and respect that some people legitimately don't want to deal with an abusive parent and choose to cut ties, there's some talk about mental illness that predates the dementia, and it's pretty easy to infer that mom was not an easy woman to deal with and that Mia and David each handled it in their own problematic ways, one of the things you do have to be willing to do is be honest about it. Mia didn't deserve to have all the weight of caregiving placed on her, and the least David could do is openly and frankly acknowledge that. Instead, he leaves a limp and weak justification hanging out there, which doesn't respect Mia's trauma and does nothing to repair the breach between them. That's going to be a common theme to David's behavior in this movie. He wants to fix things, but he doesn't want to dig into them. He seems to be hoping that if he just comes back and starts being useful, eventually everyone will forgive him without the need for a real conversation over what happened and how they all feel about it. While David is making more minor repairs, using a nail gun to put some of the loose boards back into place, Olivia and Eric come to him privately to level with him. They tell him that this isn't Mia's first attempt at kicking heroin, that the last time she lasted only eight hours before giving up and finding someone to score a new dose from, and that she subsequently OD'd and was legally dead for a brief period before being revived. They brought her out to this cabin to go through withdrawal because they knew that with only two cars and miles of wilderness between her and another dose, there was no way she could break down and shoot up. And they're all determined not to let her leave no matter what she says which is kidnapping and is illegal. The film doesn't say that explicitly, but it's clear that everyone understands that and everyone is committed. Everyone except David, who's not sure if he can hold his sister against her will if it comes to it. I personally think that this should have been part of the pre-talk for this particular intervention, but again, David's heavily estranged from the group, and maybe they felt like if they brought it up beforehand, David wouldn't even have let them use the cabin. Better to beg forgiveness than ask permission, as they say, even if this movie is a really good example of why that's not true. Also, if they're really going this hard at helping Mia kick heroin, then someone should definitely have searched her stuff to make sure she wasn't hiding a stash. One of my little nitpicks about this movie is that Mia is left unsupervised a lot, even before the demonic possession, and nobody really seems to take into account the risks involved in letting an addict be by themselves when going through physical withdrawal to say nothing of the fact that they seem to think she'll be absolutely fine once she kicks the habit, even though there's a psychological component to any drug addiction, and Mia really needs to commit to therapy to uncover the reasons she needs heroin to cope with her life. But Olivia is a registered nurse, not a specialist in this kind of care, and Lord knows the others are completely untrained. This wouldn't be the first movie where people try to do the right thing without the knowledge to realize how quickly they're going to get in over their head is a theme. As night falls, a miserable and angry Mia complains about the smell again, and Olivia sedates her while the others tell her they don't notice any odor. Luckily for Mia, the dog sniffs his way to a hidden entrance to the cellar underneath the rug in the living room, and the others can't pretend they don't notice the reek of decay that wafts up as soon as they open it. Or the trail of blood leading to the stairs. But even though Mia's absolutely right, the others don't apologize or give her any credit for the discovery, instead going down the rickety and rotten steps to investigate. They find a room full of dead cats hanging from the ceiling, a post that's been badly charred, a shotgun, and a book wrapped in black plastic and barbed wire. So, you know, not a red flag for anything. The next morning, Natalie slices into a beef roast with an electric carving knife, excuse me, with Chekhov's electric carving knife, while outside, Mia walks out her restlessness in the rain by making rapid, tense circles in the front yard. 
Again, I feel like this is really lackadaisical supervision on her friend's part, but there's probably a lot of arguing and bargaining going on off-screen during this portion of the movie, and maybe Mia finally wore them down to the point where they just let her get on with it so long as they could at least see her through the window. And Eric... Okay, look. I know I say all the time that the big difference between people watching a horror movie and people in a horror movie is that the people who are in the horror movie don't know they're in the horror movie, and the people watching them do. And certainly in the real world, where there's no definitive evidence of the supernatural, and pretty much everything we've ever found has been proven to be a hoax, it's easy to imagine that if you did find a book of real magic spells, you'd probably just assume it to be a prop, or a gag, or someone's idea of a joke. But even so, Eric is tempting fate here to an absolutely absurd degree. Not only does he cut away the barbed wire and tear off the plastic covering to expose a book bound in human flesh, not only does he ignore the scrawled annotations saying things like Leave this book alone, and Don't say it, don't write it, don't hear it, not only does he flip straight to the page that has the demon summoning incantations without even taking five minutes to read up on what they're supposed to do, not only does he take rubbings of the words that were scribbled out so he can see what they say, but he then immediately reads them out loud to himself as though they'll make more sense that way. This is one of the most epically, obviously, methodically dumbass things anyone has ever done in a horror movie. A full-on lick-the-frozen-light-post-to-see-if-your-tongue-sticks-to-it moment. And while I can't actually criticize it as a flaw in the film, because if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that there's no goddamn limit to some people's enthusiastic stupidity, I can say that it's really impossible to like Eric after this. As Eric reads from the Naturam de Manto, a familiar unseen force comes roaring through the woods. The book is not the Necronomicon Ex Mortis in this version. It appears that there are multiple volumes of the Book of the Dead, and this one both looks different on the outside and has different interior pages. Evil Dead Rise touches on this as well, and supposedly Sam and Ivan Raimi are composing a sort of series Bible that will establish the relationship between the different tomes in more detail and explain how they all got into the world. My fan theory is that Death, aka the actual Grim Reaper, wrote them, and Ex Mortis is the author attribution but my fanfic isn't canon. Yet. The Force shows itself to Mia in the form of a vision of her future self, already possessed and distorted into demonic form, and she immediately vomits. She runs back into the house, steals the keys to Eric's car, and slips out through her bedroom window because Mia's friends are legitimately terrible at doing their one job of staying with the recovering addict at all times. She also breaks David's buckthorn necklace in a fit of resentment. I love the fact that of everything they decided to bring along from the first movie, right up there front and center is one character gives another a necklace that they keep making a big deal over that turns out not to factor into the plot in any meaningful way. It's never not hilarious to me. Mia drives off, but when she sees an apparition of her possessed self in the middle of the road, she swerves to avoid it and crashes into a swamp. She's not seriously injured, though, and she manages to climb out of the flooded car and begins to head back for the cabin. But if you've seen the original, you can guess what's going to happen, and sure enough, she's grabbed by some thorny vines and yanked into a spread-eagled position before the demonic Mia approaches her and extrudes a thick black tongue-like tendril from her mouth that looks to be CGI despite the film's general commitment to practical effects because there's some things CGI just does better. 
it crawls across the forest floor to Mia, and, as in the original, enters her vaginally. Because this was the thing we needed to replicate almost shot for shot from the original. Alvarez does say, to be scrupulously fair, that he didn't want to include this scene. According to him, one of the producers forced him to add it in. He doesn't say who, but it feels like Rob Tappert would be the prime suspect given his original history with this scene, claiming it was one of the most memorable moments of the original and the movie needed exactly that kind of shock. And certainly, if this is true, I can understand Alvarez's dilemma. This is his first feature, and possibly his only chance to make or break an entire career in the movies. Picking a fight with the producer and getting fired from his first job would be devastating. And it's not fair to be put in that position, even if we can all hope we'd hold the line and not add this scene to this movie. But then again, he also did Don't Breathe, where nobody at all forced him to do anything, and he very consciously chose to make it a movie about women getting raped with turkey basters to forcibly impregnate them, so maybe I don't so much totally 100% believe his account of the situation. Let's just say it's gross and unnecessary whoever did it, and Sam Raimi should have pulled rank and had it removed. As with the previous installment, it doesn't really fit in with the tone of the rest of the film, which is gruesome and violent, but not sexualized. The best thing I can say about it is that it feels marginally like the actor herself was put through less of the kind of experience Ellen Sandweiss went through to shoot the scene. But that ain't saying much. The others find Mia and bring her back inside, and the film does a lot of clever visual coding at this point to make you think you're beginning to understand where it's headed. David is now wearing a powder blue shirt very similar to Ash's in the original Evil Dead trilogy, and with his sister getting sexually assaulted in a manner very reminiscent of Cheryl in the first movie, we get the feeling that he's going to be our final survivor, and his arc will be getting over his guilt about not being there for his mother. That makes Eric a Scotty stand-in, Natalie our Linda analog, and Olivia our Shelley. And while there's some small amount of truth to all that, the filmmakers are definitely setting us up to have our expectations kicked out from under us. Olivia once again dismisses Mia's account of events as drug-addled paranoia, claiming she probably threw herself into a thorn bush to get them to bring her to a hospital where she can score some more drugs. Mia tries to tell David that there's something inside the cabin with her, something evil that wants her soul, but the very intensity of her explanation brings back David's bad experiences with his mother's psychotic episodes and he doesn't believe her which means Mia's alone when she sees a demonic version of herself in the mirror. Again, there's a motif through the entire series of mirrors as portals to other realms. We don't see what happens next, but when David goes down and cleans out the dead cats from the cellar, bringing them outside to the trash, he finds Grandpa the dog near the tool shed dying of several blows from a claw hammer. Immediately suspecting Mia, because let's face it, who else is there? He goes to confront her, but she's locked herself in the bathroom. And, as we soon see, she's turned up the water so hot that it's physically scalding her while she stands under it. As I've mentioned in the past, this isn't a plot hole. The prevailing theory for plumbing design does seem to be, well, if it gets too hot, they'll just move. David breaks in and finds her, flesh bubbling and blistering under the hot water. And I do have to admit a certain horrified respect for the way that Alvarez and Sayaguyas thought through the stages of demonic possession and used them to create vivid and striking visuals for each individual deadite in this film. The possessing entity always begins by taking direct physical control of the host, not forcing them out immediately, but using their bodies to make them mutilate themselves and destroy their own identity as represented by their physical appearance. Once they've given up, the souls are more easily torn free and the demons have free reign. 
It's a clever, if nightmarish, philosophy, and it really works to create an atmosphere of true horror. Mia's injuries now demand hospital treatment, and David drives as fast as he can to get her to safety, while Eric goes back to the book and sees that, oh, hey, yeah, there are some passages here about a woman who gets assaulted by vines and subsequently pours boiling water on her skin. Funny that. But David soon discovers that the shallow river he drove across on his way in has been flooded by the constant rain, cutting off their only way out until the rushing water subsides. Mia looks back at him and slowly menacingly smiles. They turn back and go to the cabin, where Olivia sedates her heavily, but it doesn't stop her from getting up and bringing a shotgun into the room to wing David with it. The door flies open as she screams at her own actions, sending a howling wind through the room along with the sound of demonic voices. That's Ellen Sandweiss there shouting, One by one we will take you! Before Mia looks at them coldly and says, You're all going to die tonight. Before collapsing. Olivia goes to grab the gun, and Mia suddenly springs back to life before vomiting a fountain of blood directly into her face. One of my other little nitpicks about this movie? The blood looks fake and watery, more like the tomato soup of the video Dead than the rich crimson gore of a Savini movie. I suspect it was an homage to the original, where the blood looked pretty fake as well, but this might have been a touch too far in terms of imitation. Olivia throws Mia off, and she goes tumbling into the cellar, and Eric immediately closes and locks it. He then confesses to the others that he's unleashed supernatural forces on them all through an act of entirely unforced stupidity, and he'll have to spend the rest of his life making amends at- Nah, nah I'm just funny Mia there. He just tells David that he thinks this might have something to do with what they found in the basement, while Olivia goes to get more sedative. But of course, Olivia's now tainted by the same evil force that possessed Mia. When she goes into the bathroom, the mirror reflects a vision of her with a ruined visage before shattering completely, and the book flutters its pages to reveal a picture of a woman with her face cut off. Olivia, sensing something terrible about to happen, runs for the door. But it slams itself shut, and as it does so, she stops dead as if she's just run into an invisible wall. She stands there frozen for a long, horrible moment before the syringe and vial drop from her hands and then she wets herself in terror. It's very disturbing, but it feels very apt under the circumstances. Alerted by the slam, Eric goes in to look for her, and as you might already have guessed, she's slicing off her own face with a piece of the broken mirror. The sound design in this scene is particularly awful and effective. He tries to back away, only to slip on a chunk of her cheek and fall, hitting his back on the toilet on the way down and stunning himself. Olivia stabs him in the chest with her mirror shard, then picks up the syringe and jabs the needle into him repeatedly before it breaks off in the flesh right next to his eye. He pulls it out, which feels like a mistake, honestly. This film features a lot of people pulling things out of wounds, which the Red Cross will immediately tell you is the absolute worst thing to do under the circumstances, and beats Olivia's head in with a chunk of the toilet tank as she crawls towards him. David begins first aid, removing the shard of mirror, see my previous comment, and bandaging the wound with duct tape, another common motif of the series, and Eric finally confesses that, oh, hey, he did read a passage out loud from the cursed book that had, don't say it, scrawled across the pages. He's bad this time, but hey, David did some shit too, right? Natalie goes to get him some water to replace the fluids he lost, which really isn't how that works, but a lack of strict medical accuracy is the least of her worries. 
because when Natalie goes back to the cabin, the cellar door's busted wide open and Mia is down at the bottom of the steps, crying and confused and complaining of pain in her legs. Natalie goes down to check on her, but of course it's a trick, another motif of the series, and when Natalie runs away, the steps break underneath her. Nonetheless, she manages to scrabble her way up to the top and get almost all the way out. When in a shot that's practically made for the trailer, something grabs her ankle and drags her back inside as the cellar door slams shut. There was actually a little bit of controversy about shots made for the trailer. A few of the deleted scenes, like Mia singing Linda's infamous We're Gonna Get You song, made their way into the ads for the film and upset more than a few people who felt cheated by not getting them in the movie itself. Pretty much all of them were restored for the director's cut. Natalie wakes up in the cellar with a demonic Mia crawling toward her, and although she's able to grab a box cutter as Mia licks her way up Natalie's thigh and swing it at her, Mia takes it away and bites deep into Natalie's hand. In the same place Ash was bit in Evil Dead 2, again, this film doesn't so much remake the previous stories as it does remix them. It's a very interesting technique and very cool. Mia licks the blade of the box cutter, bifurcating her own tongue in the process, then kisses Natalie full on the lips after screaming at her with gendered slurs because clearly the one thing we needed to add to tree rape was the literal demonization of queer sexuality. I know it's odd that I'm honestly more upset about this than about the biting or the vomiting as a means of transmitting demonic possession, but in a movie where sex is otherwise entirely absent, presenting it solely as another form of violence is the wrong kind of gross and unpleasant. It feels purely exploitative, not like the filmmakers have something to say, as they do in Videodrome or even Flesh-Eating Mothers. But just as Mia is assaulting her, David comes to rescue Natalie, and we get a few moments of homage to the exorcist as the demon inside Mia lets loose a few sexual taunts before David locks her inside and adds a few eye hooks he can run some chains through for good measure. In The Exorcist, though, I feel like the sexualized taunts made more sense, because there it was deliberately contrasting the celibacy of the priests and the innocence of Regan with the carnal frankness of the devil. Here it's both less shocking than the visceral and raw body horror of every other scene, and simultaneously consciously, awkwardly, pathetically edgy. I think it was a mistake for this movie, and I'm glad we pretty much drop it after this scene. Eric goes to try to burn the book, but surprise surprise, it doesn't burn. He goes over some of the details of the thing he unleashed on the world, all without ever once accepting any responsibility for it, and brings up a prophecy that if the demons can take five souls, the skies will rain blood and an abomination will be released from hell. To, I don't know, finally get to the DMV and get its driver's license renewed, I guess? It all sounds very apocalyptic, but I kind of feel like it's checkoffing a climax that doesn't quite go as big as I hoped. While they're in Eric's bedroom chatting, Natalie is in the kitchen trying to clean the bite wound she got from Mia, and yeah, you guessed it, her hand becomes possessed. With some obvious CGI, not to complain about it because it's very vivid and horrifying, but it is a little frustrating to hear Alvarez brag that they didn't use any CGI, and to see this movie held up as a triumph of practical effects and an example to future filmmakers when it's really blatant that they blended computer graphics and practical effects to utilize each one's strengths just like everyone should be able to do without getting pilloried by terminally online horror fans. Natalie does the only thing she can think of, grabbing the electric carving knife and using it to saw off her arm midway through the bicep. 
And I feel like this is, not to put too fine a point on it, both an amazing sequence of gory horror and a real problem for the third act. Because they don't treat this as a comedy amputation like Evil Dead 2 did. It's presented with gruesome on-camera realism, even if most electric carving knives aren't made to cut through bone. And the way the last few shreds of flesh tear under their own weight as the arm falls to the floor is a horrifying image that will haunt you long after the movie's over. That's fine, that's what it's trying to do. But it does set a tone for the way the 2013 Evil Dead presents body horror. And not to spoil, but it does not stick to that aesthetic all the way through. Also, I can't get past this sequence without mentioning the wonderfully creepy way the possessed Mia goads Natalie into slicing her own arm off through reverse psychology, then giggles like a little schoolgirl once her trick works and Natalie's mutilated herself. Jane Levy really gives a dominating performance as Queen Deadite here. David bandages up Natalie's stump, while Eric explains that there are three ways to purge the demon from a possessed victim. Burying them alive, burning their bodies, or the old standby bodily dismemberment. David is reluctant to try any of them on his sister, which gives Eric the motherfucking audacity to complain about David's behavior when he is literally the cause of every single thing that's happened in this movie. Their argument is interrupted, though, when a now fully possessed Natalie comes in with the nail gun David was using earlier to make repairs, several nails already studded into her own face, and begins firing. And no, this isn't something that would actually work in the real world. Actual nail guns have a pressure sensor on the head, so you can't pull the trigger unless they're pushed up against a flat surface. And even if you could trick it with some sort of jury-rigged mechanism, nails aren't aerodynamic and they'd lose a lot of their momentum very quickly. They'd certainly hurt when they hit you, assuming they did because this isn't something that's built for accuracy, but they wouldn't go in deep the way they do here. That said, it feels emotionally accurate to be frightened of a nail gun shooting nails, so it makes intuitive sense and we can all suspend our disbelief and watch David and Eric desperately try to escape a barrage of flying metal that badly injures them both before David manages to knock Natalie down and send the gun flying out of her hand. They use their brief respite to pull out the nails. Again, guys, don't do that. It just makes the bleeding worse. Before Natalie gets back up and attacks David with a crowbar. She beats him pretty badly with her one good hand before Eric can get to the nail gun and fire on her, and the score in this scene, which uses air raid sirens as an instrument in a way I haven't heard in any other movie, is so tense and nerve-wracking that I love how much I hate it. But the nails don't have much stopping power, and Natalie absolutely devastates Eric's hand with a well-placed blow before David finally shoots her other arm off with the shotgun. At which point the demons let her go. My face hurts, she mumbles, before collapsing into David's lap and dying. It's a heartbreaking, brutal moment. But of course there's no time to rest. Both David and Eric are badly injured, and the two deadites could jump back up and recover at any moment. David brings Eric out to the car. In a deleted scene, he first immolates Olivia and saws up Natalie's body with the chainsaw, which explains where their bodies go in the third act and soaks down the cabin with gasoline in preparation for a final bonfire that will purge his sister's spirit. But she sings their childhood lullaby to him, he sees a tree getting struck by lightning, and he comes up with a plan. And I have to say, this is where the movie loses me a little. Because David's plan, and in fact a lot of what happens in the rest of the movie, is the kind of heightened goofiness that worked really well in Evil Dead 2. 
David prepares a car battery as an improvised defibrillator and digs an open grave before going down into the cellar to tranquilize his sister so he can bury her alive, then restart her heart once she stops breathing. It's a plan very much on the level of, I'm going to attach a chainsaw to my wrist so I can use it as a sword hand. But that made sense in Evil Dead 2 because the whole movie was a big, gory, live-action cartoon and Ash was every bit as realistic and believable as Daffy Duck. Here we're being asked to go from Natalie saws through her own arm with an electric carving knife and we see the flesh rend and tear and bleed, to David gets thrown around by his evil sister like they're doing a WWE cage match and not notice the clash in tones. And I'm sorry, but I don't think it works that way. At least, not for me. Speaking of being thrown around like a WWE cage match, yes, David's plan goes wrong because his super-strong, demonically-possessed sister isn't willing to sit still and let herself be sedated for some reason. She beats David up before nearly drowning him in the flooded basement, but Eric hits her on the back of the head with the crowbar, giving David the chance to sedate her. But Eric stabbed in the stomach with the box cutter in the process, and that's one wound too many for him. He succumbs to his injuries, and David tips him over into the water in a scene that I don't think the filmmakers intended to be darkly comical, but really kind of is. Here, um, this is, you know, just in case you're not simply passed out. Because really, this is all your fault. David then buries Mia alive, although not before the demon gets in a last few exorcist threats of Mom's in Hell, she blames you for everything, you're going to suffer for this, Father Karras, and then, once she's dead, he digs her up and defibrillates her. There's a long, tense moment when he believes he's failed, but nope. She hops back up, right as rain, bifurcated tongue repairs, blisters healed, sedatives fully purged from her system, back on her feet within seconds. It is truly a miracle cure. The two embrace, all their interpersonal problems resolved through a night of cathartic violence, and David goes in to get the car keys so they can leave, only to be attacked by an undead and possessed Eric who slits his throat with the wire clippers he used earlier to free the book. Realizing he's a goner, David decides to save his sister by using the shotgun to ignite the gasoline he splashed around earlier, setting the cabin on fire and freeing Eric. But his death makes five. There's a deleted scene where you see him getting possessed in the instance before the fire rages out of control, and that means it's time for the blood rain. Mia, who made it outside with the car keys before the house went whoosh, finds her necklace miraculously intact and lying on the ground with the chain twisted into the shape of a skull. And I hope you weren't expecting it to feature in the climax, because it absolutely does not. Instead, she feels a drop of blood fall onto her palm and realizes that things have just gotten very bad. Then the abomination rises from the sodden earth, and I gotta admit, I'm kinda underwhelmed. There's an illustration we see elsewhere in the movie of a giant crowned figure wreathed in shadow, and I really thought the abomination would be something like that. Ten, twenty feet tall, a massive powerhouse of demonic energy, something really scary and apocalyptic and awful. But instead, it's just a doppelganger of demonic Mia from earlier. Super strong, sure, but it's literally nothing we haven't seen before in this movie. It's not an escalation of the threat, which I think you need when you're going into the final battle and the skies are raining blood as evil has apparently triumphed. Not that we need to get into parsing the semantics of the demons claim five souls, but it does seem a little unfair that they still count even after you do the mystic purging stuff. Come on, guys. That's like me saying I have five bucks after I get one dollar at a time and spend it at the arcade. Mia tries to get into the car and drive away, but the abomination breaks open the driver's side window and she doesn't have a chance to get the jeep started. 
She flees out the passenger door, making her way into the tool shed and foregoing a machete in favor of the chainsaw. That's a big mistake, as we've mentioned in all of the other Evil Dead movies and most of the Texas Chainsaw movies, but one of the other motifs of this series is chainsaws as hero weapons, so I'm not going to complain. She gets it refueled and escapes the woodshed by crawling through the gap between the inner and outer walls, but she can't get the saw started and she has to hide underneath the car to buy herself a little more time. She manages to get it going and saw through the Abomination's leg, but it tips the car over, and wouldn't you know it, the Jeep lands on her hand, pinning it. So she's got a chainsaw. And she's got a trapped hand. And she's the hero in an Evil Dead movie. Naturally, she just pulls really hard, ripping her own hand off at the wrist, because that's totally a thing you can do. And it barely even trickles blood, because, hey, it's not like there are major veins and arteries in the wrist, right? And then when the Abomination says, I will feast upon your soul, Mia snarls out, feast on this, motherfucker, like she's an action hero and not somebody rapidly dying of blood loss, and saws the Abomination's head in half. Before tucking her severed wrist under her shoulder like it's a bit chilly and she's trying to warm it up. It is, to say the least, a tone problem. It wouldn't be if the whole movie was like this, if this was an Evil Dead 2-style comedy romp where you could believe 12 impossible things before breakfast and blood loss was something that happened to other people, but this is a movie that has up until now been playing it very straight with the audience the same way the original did. You can't do a gory, sincerely awful and realistic body horror movie for the first 75 minutes and then go full ham in the last fight scene, not if you want people to believe it. And this doesn't feel very believable to me, even if I understand that I'm supposed to just shut off my rational brain and root for the happy ending Mia very much deserves. But in any event, a happy ending is what we get. Mia stumbles off into the rising sun, a deleted mid-credit sequence has her found and rescued by a passing trucker, while the book remains, undamaged, undamageable, just waiting to be found and read again. There was an ending shot that was identical to the end of the original, with the unseen force swooping out of the burning cabin to assault a screaming Mia, but the studio said it was too dark. Did they not know what series they were making? As the credits roll, we're treated to a little nostalgia in the form of Professor Noby's original recording from the 1981 film, followed by a final stinger of Bruce Campbell himself calling what he just saw... Groovy. But unfortunately, there was no groovy follow-up where we saw what happened to Mia. It wasn't that the film didn't do well at the box office. It made $97 million on a budget of $17 million, better than any other installment of the series. Rather, it was a victim of its own success. It ignited so much interest in the franchise that people started clamoring for Bruce Campbell to come back and reprise his iconic role. And, as we'll see in a couple of episodes' time, that's exactly what we got. But for now, will I hang on to this movie? I think I will. I might quibble with the ending a little, but it's not like I can really be too upset with it. I like Mia, after all, and while I might have subverted the amputation expectation by having her free her hand some other way, amputation expectation would be a good name for a death metal band, incidentally, I can't really be mad that she survived and escaped. And there's a whole lot to love about this film's commitment to gory, grotesque body horror. If, you know, you're into that sort of thing. Which I am. And if you want to talk about gory body horror, death metal band names, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. 
You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror and hear episodes a week early, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, we've talked a lot about the Evil Dead series, but it's not like Sam Raimi hasn't directed any other horror. In fact, he followed up one of his biggest critical flops, and his biggest and most unwieldy studio picture to date, with a small, simple horror movie intended to get him back to his roots and have a little fun. And while it didn't do great at the box office, I think it's safe to say that Drag Me to Hell gives us a lot to talk about. So let's discuss 2009's unrated director's cut of Drag Me to Hell. See you then.